but we should have that same relationship between an ordinary gospel-centered life undergirded, underpinned by extraordinary faith. And when we have that relationship in place, that is when John says we become overcomers of the world. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Living the Assured Life from Pastor Paul Twist. Is there a secret to finding assurance of salvation? Where in the Bible can we go to understand what it means to live the assured Christian life? In this message, Pastor Paul explains that the Apostle John wrote the book of 1 John to assure believers of their salvation. In this book, John gets practical and teaches that the assured life is nothing more than the ordinary Christian life. What does the ordinary Christian life look like? What does it mean to have an extraordinary faith? Here's part one of Living the Assured Life, and we pick up with Pastor Paul reading our text for today. Our text this evening is 1 John 5, 1 through 5, and the Word of God reads, Everyone who believes... Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this evening. Christopher Love uh, was a Welsh preacher. He was alive during the 1600s, and he was one whose life came to an abrupt and sudden end in 1651, when he was accused by Oliver Cromwell of conspiracy, of attempting to restore the monarchy at that time, and after a short trial, he was sentenced to death. Now, as he waited his day of execution in his prison cell, his wife, Mary Love, wrote him a letter, and I'd like to read you that letter this evening. She said, before I write a word further, I beseech thee to think not that it is thy wife, but a friend now that writes to thee. I hope thou hast freely given up thy wife and children to God. Thy maker will be my husband and a father to thy children. Oh, that the Lord would keep thee from having one troubled thought for thy relations. I desire freely to give thee up into thy father's hands and not only look upon it as a crown of glory for thee to die for Christ, but as an honor to me that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. I dare not speak to thee nor have a thought within my own heart of my own 
unspeakable loss. But wholly keep my eye fixed upon thy inexpressible and inconceivable gain. Thou leavest but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. Thou leavest but children, brothers and sisters to go to the Lord Jesus, thy eldest brother. Thou leavest friends on earth to go to the enjoyment of saints and angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in glory. Thou dost leave earth for heaven and changest a prison for a palace. If natural affections should begin to arise, I hope that the spirit of grace that is within thee will quell them, knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison of those things that are above. I know thou keepest thine eye fixed on the hope of glory, which makes thy feet trample on the loss of earth. My dear, I know God hath not only prepared glory for thee, but thee for it. I'm also persuaded that he will sweeten the way for thee to come to the enjoyment of glory. When thou art putting thy clothes on that morning, think, I am now putting on my wedding garments to be married to my everlasting Redeemer. When the messenger of death comes, let him not seem dreadful, but look on him as a messenger that brings tidings of eternal life. When thou goest up the scaffold, think that it is but thy fiery chariot to carry thee up to thy father's house. And when thou layest thy precious head down to receive thy father's stroke, remember what thou saidst to me. Though thy head was severed from thy body, yet in a moment thy soul should be united to thy head, the Lord Jesus, in heaven. And though it may seem bitter that by the hands of men we are parted a little sooner than otherwise we might have been, Yet let us consider that it is the decree and will of our Father, and it will not be long ere we shall enjoy one another in heaven again. Let us comfort one another with these sayings. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, and thou shalt be where the weary shall be at rest, and the wicked shall cease from troubling. Remember that thou mayest eat dinner with bitter herbs, yet thou shalt have a sweet supper with Christ that night. My dear, I will write no more, nor trouble thee any further, but commit thee into the arms of God, with whom ere long thee and I shall be. Farewell, my dear. I shall never see thy face more till we both behold the face of the Lord Jesus at that great day. Signed, Mary Love. It's a difficult letter to read. Every time I, I read it, what strikes me is not 
that a Christian was killed for doing what he thought was right in the history of the church since its conception. What strikes me is not even Mary's love and her devotion for her husband. What strikes me is the ordinary nature of her encouragement. The ordinary nature of her ministry to her husband at that time. And I I say that not meaning in any way to belittle her grief or to belittle the trial that they walked through. But as I reflect upon her letter to her husband, it strikes me that the truths she ministered are just simple gospel truths. Truths of God's sovereignty. Truths of the reality of heaven, truths of the glory of Christ. These are simple truths that we have even sung about this evening. Now, of course, they take on a particular force in the context, given the extreme nature of the circumstances. And so then the question becomes, how is it that Mary Love was able to maintain such consistency How able was she to to, to carry on and, and maintain perspective during such a desperate time? How was she able to give to her husband words that he had previously spoken to her? Words that no doubt she had been singing in church Sunday by Sunday. She now uses those same truths to minister them to her husband as he faces death. And I think the answer is because these ordinary words are undergirded by an extraordinary faith. Now, by that, I don't mean that she had some extra measure of faith, but rather that the object of her faith was extraordinary. That is the Lord Jesus. I think she was able to minister in this way at this time with such perspective, with such measure, with such gospel truth, because her eyes were fixed upon the Lord Jesus. Because day after day, Mary Love was looking upon her Savior and finding him to be all that he was. She truly believed that he was the bread of life, the King of Kings, the Savior of the world. Now, her circumstances were unique. I don't know that either you or I will find ourselves in such a situation. I I don't know. But we should have that same relationship between an ordinary gospel-centered life, undergirded, underpinned by extraordinary faith. And when we have that relationship in place, that is when, John says, we become overcomers of the world. That is when the scriptures declare that we have overcome the world. This is the relationship that John teases out this evening in the first five verses of this final chapter of the letter. Now, last time we were in 1 John, closing up chapter 4, I argued that there, John really did give us the conclusion to the letter. Chapter 4, verse 7 through to the end is his thesis statement given to us one last time. And so now as we enter chapter 5, what he's doing is, in essence, tying up some loose ends. John still has some issues that he needs to deal with. That's why, coincidentally, we find a number of interpretive problems in chapter 5. We know chapter 5 of 1 John because it's here that he talks about in verse 6 the fact that Jesus came by water and the blood. 
What does that mean that Jesus came by water and the blood? And, and people have spoken about that and discussed that for years and years and years. And, and another interpretive issue is in verse 16, where he talks about the sin that doesn't lead to death and a sin that, that does lead to death. And what does John mean by that? We get all these interpretive issues in chapter 5 because it's here that John is tying up the loose ends. And he knows that there are still issues that are outstanding that he needs to address. If there's an issue that John is addressing tonight, it is the question of how. For four chapters now, he's rehearsed the biblical argument for assurance. This whole letter is, is written to give believers assurance of their salvation. And it's here at the beginning of chapter 5 that he finally gets very, very practical. Not that he hasn't been so far, but he understands that questions may still remain in his readers' minds. How do I make sure that when the rubber meets the road, I practice the theology that you've given me? How can I make sure that I put this into practice so that I won't be left in a nervous state of mind concerning my identity in Christ? And John simply gives a, a twofold argument. He rehearses his, his main points again in the first three verses. He tells us what the assured Christian life looks like. And we'll actually see there that the assured Christian life is the ordinary Christian life. There are no magic secrets. There are no hidden formulas to finding assurance it's not a, a secret path that we have to learn, but rather the ordinary Christian life is the assured Christian life. And we do well to remember that in the opening of this book, he connects the assured life to the joy-filled life. I write these things to you in order that you might have endless joy, fullness of joy. The assured life is the joy-filled life. The assured life is the ordinary Christian life. And then the second part of John's argument is to show us that the only possible way in which we might live an ordinary Christian life is if it is underpinned by an extraordinary faith. He talks about the victory that we have in Christ, of overcoming the world, of finding his commandments not burdensome. And the idea, again, is not that, that we have some incredible measure of faith in and of ourselves, but rather that the object of our faith is extraordinary. And we look upon the extraordinary object of our faith, the man Christ Jesus, and when our eyes are set upon him, that's when we're finally enabled to live out the ordinary Christian life, the assured, joy-filled Christian life. Now, it is important for us to consider these things. It's important for John's original readers to consider such things because they had been taught the exact opposite. They had been taught by the false teachers in their midst that they needed to do something other than the ordinary. They had been taught that they needed to, to depart from the path of Christian orthodoxy, that they needed to believe something else. They needed to affirm something more. They'd been taught to, to come away with us and join this, this exclusive community, and then you'll know fullness of joy. And John has to recalibrate them and say, no, you're just being called to live an ordinary Christian life. And for us, our tendency is always to reverse that relationship, 
Our tendency is always to believe that significance is found in the extraordinary, that is, in our own activities being somewhat different. We struggle to believe that the assured and joy-filled life is simply to tread out the same path that has been trodden out by millions of Christians before us. We're just being asked to do the same thing again. And that will lead us into assurance of salvation and fullness of joy. We, we struggle to believe that. And then when we consider the object of our faith, well, honestly, we, we think little of it. We think too little and too infrequently of Christ. We just don't set our gaze upon him enough in order that we might claim some kind of extraordinary faith that underpins our lives. And the reason that so many would struggle with assurance is because they depart from this relationship. John is desperate to help his readers to put his theology into practice. And that is what he will do for us this evening. So we just walk through this twofold argument, the first half being one through three, the first half of verse three, John says again, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, all John has done there is to synthesize, to summarize the first four chapters of the letter. He's just tied it all together very neatly in three short verses. He's told us yet again what it looks like to tread out a path of assurance. Notice, he says, first of all, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who is a Christian, the one who's been born of God, believes that Jesus is the Christ. That is the, the staple mark of the Christian life. And there is an emphasis in the way John phrases this on the, on the continuous nature of the belief. He's saying that the one who has truly been born of God, the evidence that they are truly born of God, is that they wake up on a Monday morning and they believe upon Christ. The evidence that you have been born of God is that on a Wednesday evening you set your affections towards Christ. The evidence that you're a Christian is that in the busyness of a Friday afternoon, you choose to believe upon the Savior. The inclination of your heart day in and day out, year after year after year, is to believe upon the Savior. And not simply in some kind of mental affirmation to the, to the doctrines of the Scripture, but belief in its fullest sense, belief in the, in the sense that Jesus prompts us in the gospel, that is to embrace him. To delight in Christ, the belief that John encourages us towards is always a belief where you delight in the Lord Jesus, where you find him to be truly above all other things. Over and over and over again, when that is the inclination of your heart, there is evidence there that you have been born of God. And that life is the assured, joy-filled life. He goes on to give us a second pillar, one that's been stated many times in the letter. He's just summarizing here. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So there again, we see the Christian. That is the one who has been born of the Father, the, the Christian. 
What does he do? What's, what is the evidence that he's been born of the Father? Well, he loves those who have been born of him. He loves the Christians around him. One of the major emphases of this letter is that Christians show love for other Christians. Again, in a, in a continuous and an ongoing way. The Christian gets up and he chooses to love the Christians that are in his life. He gets up and he chooses to love the Christians that are in his life. And, and there is no day off because the inclination of his heart is that he can't do otherwise. That's the spirit that's in him. God has given him a love for the other Christians in his life. And so we look around us and we see the Christians that are in our Bible study and the Christians that were in our fellowship group and we do nothing but love them. And we feel weary and tired, but we get up again and we love them. And there are days when we look around and we say, but they're just so weird. And you know what? So are you. And so we just get up and love them. That is the evidence that we're of God. We love one another. And then Joan goes on in verse 2 to, to continue summarizing his argument. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but it's really curious what John does here. It's the very first time in the letter that he does it. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God. So normally what John does is he states that relationship in the other direction. He says, normally, evidence that we love God is our love for Christians. Just then what he said is, evidence that we love Christians is our love for God. The relationship works in both directions. You are called to love God, there's the vertical axis, and to love your neighbor, there's the horizontal axis. And when you, when you get into the text of Deuteronomy, what you see is that the law shows that the two are inextricably linked. You cannot separate the two. You cannot demonstrate a love for God on a Sunday, show up and, and demonstrate your devotion to God and during the week have no love for his children. And the opposite is also true. You cannot demonstrate love for God's children on a Thursday night at Bible study and not also show up on Sunday and demonstrate your love for God. You can't compartmentalize your Christian life. You can't pick and choose. You can't do one thing and not the other. It's a holistic love. And I do think the reason that John states it in this way at this point is to show us, to point us towards the holistic nature of the Christian life. If you are born again, then you are born again. If you are a Christian, you're a Christian, day after day after day, morning, evening, and night. That's it. And you behave as such. And so you love Christians and you love God, and the two cannot be separated. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. The Apostle John's original audience was being taught by false prophets that they needed to do something beyond the ordinary. They were encouraged to depart from the path of Christian orthodoxy. Pastor Paul argued that the ordinary Christian life is the assured, joy-filled life. When believers depart from the ordinary, gospel-centered life, they struggle with assurance. Are you struggling with the assurance of your salvation? If so, have you departed from the basics of gospel-centered living? Are you thinking too little and too infrequently about Christ? We must fix our eyes on Christ and make Him the object of our faith. 
If you'd like to know more about Jesus and how to live your life centered on Him, visit our website, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcast for our free audio archive of great gospel teaching from Pastor Paul. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If the solid Bible teaching of this outreach ministry is a great benefit to your walk with Jesus, would you consider making a financial gift? You'll be supporting what God is doing to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus through this outreach program. To make your gift of any amount, go to TimelessTruthToday.org and select Donate. Join us tomorrow, part two in our new series, Living the Assured Life. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.